Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read seven verses in the second message in our sermon series, Journey Through Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the New King James Version. The word said, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed, remember that, for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Today I want to talk about the birth as we take our journey through Christmas. If you will, pray with me and for me one more time. Father, we thank you for your presence. Such a sweet spirit we feel in your house today. We thank you for every person assembled together here. Lord, we pray that you would bless and anoint your word today. God, don't let me speak with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but let your word, let your truth come forth, to come forth today in the power and the demonstration of your spirit. Lord, more than anything, let us leave this place differently than we came. Let us leave affected this Christmas season by the birth of the greatest gift that this world has ever received, your son Jesus. We give you thanks and praise in advance. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. So I want to ask you this morning, are we more loyal to the traditions of Christmas? Are we more emotionally and spiritually uh, attached and committed to tradition than we are to truth? What is actual tradition and what is truth? When I first began to study the Christmas story many years ago before I wrote my first Christmas sermon... I was baffled by some of the things that I found as I studied the commentary uh, and read the Word of God. Some of the things that we have been that are harmless, that we have been taught in tradition, but yet can't necessarily be backed up with Scripture nonetheless. So let's start off talking about some of those things this morning. First of all, the date. Everybody knows that the traditional date for Christmas is December the 25th. What you may or may not know is there is not one single shred of evidence in this book that December the 25th was actually the day that Jesus Christ was born. As a matter of fact, the date is not even known. And an interesting fact that you might find is that for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians did not even celebrate Christmas. The apostles did not gather around trees and start passing out gifts and say, this is the day that Christ was born. Instead, what they said was, Christ was born. He came. And because he came, we can have life. That's what's important. Amen? That's what they said. So it doesn't really matter that we don't know when he came. Another interesting fact in Scripture is this. In the four Gospels, you'll find that Christmas is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament with the exception of Matthew and Luke. Mark and John didn't even mention it, and it's not in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, didn't say the first word about Christmas either. And so had God wanted us to know exactly when His Son breathed His first breath, then we would know it. How many believes that? 
If God really wanted us to know, we would know it. But God knows that no matter what happens, and this is so true in our society today, religious people, regardless of what we know or don't know, religious people are going to set up a statue, they're going to pick a date, and they're going to create some kind of symbol so that they can visualize what God, who is the invisible creator that we can't even see anyway, uh, they can visualize what God, the invisible creator, has done. And nobody knows for sure, but those who speculate feel certain that Jesus was probably born. This is gonna those of you that are dreaming of a white Christmas, this is probably gonna this is probably gonna blow that for you. But most theologians even believe that Jesus was probably born in the springtime. Because that's when the sheep would be having their lambs. And that's what Jesus was. He was the sacrificial lamb of the Son of God. And, and the weather would not be so bitter cold because the, the fact is you will not find shepherds out in the fields in the bitterness of the wilderness and the elements on the hillsides in the middle of December. So there's absolutely nothing holy about December the 25th. It's not any holier than any other day of the year. Now... About 336 years after Jesus was crucified, for the first time, there was a Roman emperor who said he was a Christian. His name was Constantine. And he declared Christianity to be the religion of the state. Now, some of you may say right now, oh boy, that's what we need right there. We need some leaders in the United States who will stand up and who will declare this as a Christian nation. But can I tell you this morning that that could actually potentially be the worst thing that's ever happened to the church as we know it. Some of you are going to be blown away probably by that. But people say all the time, this is a Christian nation. Our forefathers were Christians. And they were. That is so true. But I want to tell you something. This is not a Christian nation anymore. Now, it's hard to say amen to that because amen means let it be so. But that's where you can jump in and say Tell it, say it, say the truth. Yes, that's right. It's not a Christian nation anymore. When we value and we lift up other religions, uh, give them an equality to the religion uh, of Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're no longer a Christian nation, right? That's just the, the mere truth. And the day that somebody in authority in this nation stands up and declares it a Christian nation, that could potentially be the worst day for the church in the history of the United States. You say, why would you say that, Pastor? Here's why. Because suddenly the government would then be in control of our religion. Did you hear me? The government would then be in control of our religion. And if the government was in control of our religion, then what denomination would it be? I can tell you more than likely what it probably would not be. More than likely it would not be spirit-filled, on-fire, evangelical, fundamental Pentecostalism. Hello, somebody. So I'm thankful this morning for the freedom. You had the freedom too to decide to worship in the church of your choice. We're thankful that this is the church of your choice. But if somebody's watching online or even if somebody's here and they're like, I don't even know what all that was about just a few minutes ago when people were jumping around on the stage and people were hooping and hollering and all that stuff, I'll tell you what it was about. It was about worshiping the God that we serve and know to be true in our hearts. It was about lifting our voices and praising Him. It was about what the psalmist said, enter His gates 
streets with thanksgiving and coming into his courts with praise. It was about worshiping him. And I'm thankful that if I choose to get up and come to this spirit-filled, fundamental, evangelical, Pentecostal church, then I can come in here and worship God to the dictates of my own conscience. And if somebody else isn't comfortable with it, there's plenty of other places they can worship. Right? But thank God. The government can't tell us, oh, what you did a few minutes ago, you can't do that in here. No, thank you. I said, no, thank you. I'd rather come and experience the presence of the Lord. That's all right. Some of them is trying to help me. Why don't you help me this morning? I said, no, thank you. I'd rather come experience the presence of the Lord. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Now, this is what happened to the church in the fourth century because suddenly there was no more persecution of Christians. I don't know if you realize that or not. But they came out of their hiding. They started writing books. They started translating Bibles. And they started declaring December the 25th as the birth date of Christ. I want to tell you this morning that God never meant for His people to be called the religion of the nation. God never meant for His people and His church to be called the religion of the nation. We were never intended to be under the supervision of the government. I won't say any more. I'll just let that preach what it did on its own. We are supposed to be, though, listen to me, we are supposed to be walking in the Spirit. We're supposed to be living by faith. And we're supposed to be telling everybody else about Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I'm probably going to preach a series next year at Christmas and get ready for it. It's going to kind of be based on Buddy the Elf. How many knows who Buddy the Elf is? And so we watched that movie this past week and I was reminded of uh, one of the codes. I think it was the third code. uh, The third elf code was this. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Right? And if you watch the movie there's a time when Buddy is in the mall and he's working and and then the, the department manager comes over and he says Santa's coming and Buddy the Elf Dwight touched on this on Wednesday night we're both on the same page and Buddy stops and he goes Santa and then he goes I know him well you may think that's funny but I would to God that we could find some Christians today that would get that excited about Jesus because there's a lost world around us that wants to make him out to be a fictional character just like Santa Claus but what they don't know is they can be just like Buddy the Elf was with Santa. They can say Jesus I know him he's not just somebody in a book. He's not just another character in history but I know him personally he's my God. He's my Savior and He's my Lord I wished I could find somebody in the church that was that excited about Jesus it's alright to get excited about Jesus you'd get excited about the Kentucky Wildcats if they were any good this year you'd scream your head off trying to watch those ball games but we come to church and we got to be all prim and proper and oh somebody might think we're out of order I wished I could find somebody that would come in on a Sunday morning and go Jesus I know him he's touched me this week he's walked with me he's talked with me anybody anybody in the house can testify this morning anybody that can testify and say he's been with you that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother so back to what I was saying we're supposed to be walking in the spirit living by faith and telling everybody about Jesus that's where I was going with that but can I tell you something else we do it best when they hate us. We do, we do it best when they hate us. Read the New Testament. 
Read the book of Acts, church. They were most effective when they were persecuted. They were most effective when they were ridiculed. They were most effective when they were rejected and they were hated. But nobody, nobody who wants to be accepted in the world doesn't understand that Jesus said this. See, we're living in a church society today that says, Oh, we, we, we can't do anything that offends anybody. Don't, don't tell anybody they're living in sin. You'll offend them. Well, how about we just attempt not to offend them and just let them go to hell? Is that what we're supposed to do? The church in the book of Acts was most effective when they were offensive. Let that sink in. They were most effective when they didn't go with the status quo. They didn't go with the normal. But you know what? Here's what Jesus had to say about it. Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. But here's what he went on to say. Let this sink in. And if they don't hate you, you don't even know who I am. Whoa. There's another scripture that says, oh, I know. Oh, I know. Wait a minute. Oh, I know some of you saying, oh, wait a minute. we got to fill that big church up. Yeah, we want to fill that big church up, but I want to fill it up with regenerates who've really been born again. Did you hear me? Uh, somebody says, oh, we, we want to fill that big church up. Don't get offensive. Don't offend anybody. You know what Jesus said? If you ain't offending anybody, I doubt you know me. He said, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, there's going to be some on that day that he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So I say, we love them enough to offend them. What do you say? That's what I say. On our journey through Christmas, we find this man named Joseph, and i got to hurry. There was a demand from Caesar Augustus that everybody's got to be registered. You knew that. So it took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So we know exactly, we can pinpoint exactly the time that that happened in history. And everybody went to be registered to the city they were born. And Luke 2 and 4 says this, Joseph also went up from Galilee. He went out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the lineage in the house of David. So a question I have for you this morning is, I thought Jerusalem was called the city of David, right? But here we have the word Bethlehem. Well, I don't get into the Hebrew much, but I'm going to here because it's important. In the Hebrew, the word Bethlehem is two parts, and it means, first of all, Beth, which means house, and Laham, which means bread. Jesus was born in the house of bread because he is the bread of life. Come on, somebody help me preach this morning. And if you come to him, you'll have bread for all eternity. That's why the psalmist said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's seed begging for bread. But here, Bethlehem is called the city of David, and there's a reason for that. Joseph came home to his own city. It was his own city, the city of David called Bethlehem, which was of the house and lineage of David. So tradition, we're talking about tradition versus truth. Tradition has painted this picture of Joseph that he was this incompetent young man who happened to be with this young girl who was expecting a child and he didn't know what to do next. And so he arrives in Bethlehem with this teenage pregnant girl and he says, Help! There's a baby coming. And he comes into the inn and he says to the innkeeper, Do you have a place we can stay? My wife's expecting a baby. And the innkeeper looks at him and says, Nope. We don't have any place for you to stay. And because there's no room for them in the end, Joseph has to take Mary out to a stable, that's what tradition says, or a cave, for the Lord of the universe to be born. But that may not be the way it happened. I want us, I want us to look at what Scripture teaches us this morning. 
First of all, Joseph was not a loser. Nor was he a cheap carpenter. He came back home to Bethlehem, which was his hometown. And guess what? Joseph was a favorite son of Bethlehem. He was of the house. That's why it's notably mentioned here. He was of the house and the lineage of David, one of the greatest kings to ever live. And so he came home to Bethlehem, and he was well known. He was of the lineage of this great king. And he more than likely would not have been walking around and begging for a place to stay for him and his pregnant wife. So was it really a stable? Let's look at that. Somehow we've gotten the idea that by the time they got to Bethlehem, Mary was already about to deliver. That's why I told you to pay close attention just a minute ago because that's not what the scripture teaches. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 again. It says that they went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days, multiple days, were completed for her to be delivered. Joseph didn't just suddenly think, oh, we got to get to town. He, he, he got Mary there in plenty of time for them to get settled in and do just like you would do and get prepared for the birth of a new baby. And we don't know how many days they were there, but we knew that it took several days to be completed before she was ready to deliver. So sometimes we get this idea that Joseph pulls his donkey up to the motel and he says to the desk clerk, do you have a room? And in all reality, it probably didn't happen anywhere near that way. He more than likely went to somebody's home. Now there were motels in Scripture because in fact the Good Samaritan puts oil in a man's wounds and, uh, and he took him to uh, a pondikeon. It's what the word is in Greek, which means a place where visitors stay. That's what a pondikeon is. It's a place where visitors stay. It's an inn. It's a motel or a hotel. And he said in Luke chapter 10, he said, if you'll take care of him, I'll pay you for the room when I get back. That's what the Good Samaritan did. But that's not the same word that's used in this instance. When it says there was no room for them in the inn, the word for inn that was used is cataluma, which means guest room. So here is more likely how it was. Joseph came into town and he had his pregnant wife with him. She was about to have a baby. He went to a house and he probably said he knew these people. They were friends. He said, we need a place to stay. How about we stay in your guest room? And in those days, if you study Middle Eastern culture and you know about how homes were built in those days, now ladies, tune in. You're going to be thankful for your house when I get done with this. So in Middle Eastern culture, Unless the people that live in your house are animals, then you already know what I'm talking about. But anyway, in those days, in the Middle Eastern culture, when they built a house, the floor level where the door came in, uh, at, at floor level, every night, guess what they would do? They would bring all of the animals in to that level. Gross, right? Here's why they did that. There were two reasons. They brought them in to keep them from being stolen, and the second reason was to create heat. And so in addition to the fireplace, the animals that they brought in would generate heat, particularly the cows generate a lot of heat, and, and heat rises. So up four or five steps from that first uh, room that you entered into, built up four or five steps above those animals, was a room uh, that was called the family room. And that's where all of the family stayed together. Everybody didn't have all their own separate bedrooms and all that stuff. All the family stayed together in the family room. That's where they took shelter at night. But right next to the family room was a guest room. It was smaller than the family room, but it was for somebody that was traveling that needed a place to stay, and they would stay in the guest room. And that's exactly the word that Joseph was asking to stay in in the Greek, a cataluma. The owner probably said, no, our guest room is full. There's other people that, it, that it have got to be registered too, so they're already here. But, well, how about you just stay with us right here? How about you just stay right here in our family room? We've got room for you right here. So 
the notion that Jesus and his parents were somehow kicked out of Bethlehem because of the rudeness and the inhospitality of those Middle Easterners is probably not true. In fact, if you didn't know this, in Middle Eastern culture, nobody, regardless of difference in religion or anything, nobody is going to turn away a woman with child. As a matter of fact, they would have, at, at the very least, they would have kept Mary and kept her inside and stay and, and safe until she at least had the baby and delivered. So they were, for the most part, they were hospitable people. They weren't Christians, but they were hospitable people. So here are Joseph and Mary, just follow with me, now staying in the family room because the guest room was already full. And they waited and prepared, and the Bible says she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger. The Bible never says stable, never says barn, never says any of that. She laid him in a manger. And so what's the manger? It's not a stable. Here's what a manger is. A manger is a trough that's carved out of wood or stone to put food in for the horses, the cows, and the sheep. And in this kind of Middle Eastern home that we're talking about, these words that were used, uh, a manger was built between where the animals stayed and the family room so that if the animals got hungry at night, they could feed right there without having to go outside. And so it's more than likely when Jesus was born that they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and they cleaned out that manger and they laid him in the manger. So, none of that really matters. But let's go on to this. On the night that Jesus was born, the Bible says, let's read verses 8 through 14. Now, they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, there it is again, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so God gave the shepherds, I want you to notice this, a specific sign uh, to identify Jesus. Now, God did not give this sign to Caesar. God did not give this sign to Herod. He gave this specific sign to the shepherds. They were the lowliest among the people there. Shepherds were people that were kicked out by society because they were known for working with filthy animals. Nobody liked shepherds, but yet the lowly shepherds were the very first ones to see Jesus. Verses 15 and 16. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, here's what they said, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now not only were the shepherds the first ones to see Jesus, they were also the first ones to proclaim his birth. Verses 17 through 20. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then, this is important, the shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So with the knowledge that we have about the Middle East and the hospitality of these people, I'm sure that these shepherds, had they shown up to a stable, to a shivering mother, picture this, who was freezing to death, to a baby who was freezing to death from the elements and the temperature laying in this manger outside somewhere, maybe clo close, possibly close to the point of death uh, because of the temperature, and to this scared father who didn't know what he was going to do and all this kind of stuff, I highly doubt they would have returned and said, praise God for all of this, right? But the word said that when they returned, they, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and which was told to them. They would have 
They wouldn't have said praise God for all of this if they'd came to the scene that's been painted for us. They would have said, no, let us take you with us. We'll take you and keep you warm for the night. But we don't find that. We don't find that anywhere in the scripture. Whatever they saw, they felt that everything was in order and they went back praising God for everything they had seen. Can I tell you something this morning? God has an order. God has an order and God has a plan. And don't you think for one second that God would let His precious virgin-born Son be at the disposal of the elements and the weather. Don't think for one second that God did not have a plan how His Son, the Savior of the world, would be born. And looking at the evidence that we have, I'm not sure that Mary and Joseph and the unborn Jesus were even rejected, as we say they were, and pushed out of town. It is more likely that the people of Bethlehem had a great respect for Joseph because they knew who he was. And Joseph would have probably had his options of places that he could have stayed in Bethlehem. It was his hometown. But it really doesn't matter what tradition tells us. Now, I hope most of the kids were in kids' church, but if they weren't, I know. Everything I just did totally destroys most of your Christmas cantatas and children's plays that you'll ever see, right? It destroys all that. But here's the deal. I'm not concerned about tradition. I'm concerned about truth. The Christmas story is just one of the things we mess up in the church with tradition. Hello, somebody. Yee. Tradition is not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about truth. Just let that sink in. Jesus was born. I don't know exactly what day he was born, but I'm thankful for that. Here's what I'm thankful for. Paul said in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here's why he's sitting. They sang about it a minute ago. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. I wonder if there's anybody in the house this morning that'll put your hands together and say, I'm glad to be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. I'm thankful to be called a child of God. So I said all that to say this, and I'm hurrying. It's not about when he came. It's about the fact that he came. I'm thankful that he came. The point of the story is that God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world. And I don't have to get worked up once a year about buying all these crazy gifts because it's not about that. Did you hear me? The thing that moves me is the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ. God gave himself for us not just once a year, but day after day, after day, and all throughout eternity, we have access to the greatest gift of all, and that's Jesus Christ. So you might ask, Pastor, does it really matter that we do all of this? Of course it doesn't matter. As long as we remember who He is. Some say, well, it's a man-made tradition. It is a man-made tradition if you only get the urge to give once a year. Last night we were watching Christmas with the Cranks at my house. To me, that's about as timeless as National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Can I get an amen? It's just funny. It's funny stuff. But I, I particularly caught it last night when he was sitting there. And, you know, they were adding up. This movie was filmed years ago. And anybody else like me, and you think, my goodness, they spent 6300 and some dollars on Christmas. Y'all remember that? And he's figuring out how he's going to skip Christmas and save money this year. They're going to go on a cruise, and it's going to save them money. Well, first of all, they spent way too much money to begin with. But I remember... When uh, in the movie last night when he was sitting there and he said, and it just kind of particularly caught me last night. It's probably going to get quiet and you probably won't help me preach on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It won't cost you anything. It's free. I won't take up a special offering for it. 
But anyway, he said, she's saying, I'm not going on the cruise unless you do our charitable contributions. And he says, oh, yeah, and these are people that had enough money to spend 6300 and some odd dollars on Christmas, right? And he said, oh, yeah, he said, all right, if you won't go, he said, I agree, I'll match our annual charitable contribution of $600 to the church. And I thought, once a year, annual contribution to the church of $600? I'm sorry, but the word tells us we're supposed to give every time we receive. Hello? Oh, yeah, I know it's going to be quiet. Only the tithe payers will help me this morning, but that's all right. We, they know, they'll help me. You know why they'll help me? Because they know what it is to walk in the blessing of God. They know what it is to do what the word says and be blessed. All right, that didn't cost you anything. I promise you it didn't. But anyway, he said that last night. We'll match the annual contribution to the church. I just said that to say this. If the only time you get the urge to give to others is once a year, it is tradition. It's not truth in your heart. I'm not just talking about giving to the church. If once a year is the only time you think about little kids who don't have bicycles or families who are struggling to put food on the table, it's tradition. And it's not truth. We're called to be compassionate. We're called to be concerned. We're called to be sympathetic. And we should be carrying that with us everywhere we go, every single day of the year, saying, God, use me to bless somebody. I'm tired of walking around. Not, not that this church is that way. I'm talking about the church world. I'm, talking, I'm tired of walking around in a selfish church world where it's all about me and my four and no more. God didn't call us to be that in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, oh, I didn't say this at 845. Y'all are getting a bonus. In the New Testament, when, when the Holy Ghost fell and the church began to grow the Bible said they sold everything they had so that they could live in common and share everything together and take care of one another do I believe that we have to do that today no not necessarily but I believe we ought to be concerned about those around us that are less fortunate than us not just at Christmas time but all throughout the year we ought to be seeking opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus not just on Christmas but in January February March April May every month of the calendar we ought to be saying, God, use us and what you blessed us with to bless somebody else. We ought to carry that with us everywhere we go. It is tradition if we see it as a holiday that we just give once a year. It is tradition if we see it as the only time of the year that we care about somebody else. And if it's tradition, it's of the devil. Did you hear me? That's what it is. If they come to the music this morning. Following Jesus is not a once a year experience. Say amen somebody. It's also not a style of worship. He's not an annual recurrence. He's not an, a religion, a church, or even a set of doctrines. He's the Son of God who is alive and well. And He's seated right now this morning at the right hand of the Father. And the Word said, ever make an intercession for you and I. He gave His very life for us. So when I go out on December 25th, is no different than when I go out on March 15th or September the 30th and I see a child who don't have a bicycle or a family that's struggling to put food on the table. I don't look at that and say, well, you know, Christmas is coming in a few months. We'll remember them and we'll give something to them. That's not the way it's supposed to work. I'm supposed to do it right then. If God's blessed me and I'm able, I'm supposed to do it right then. Say amen, somebody. God's people are to be a compassionate people. What's Matthew 5 and 16 say? It says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. It's not about how you feel in the season. Would anybody else agree with me and say, if we talk about feeling, 2020 has just been a weird year. 
And does anybody else say it don't really feel like Christmas? It's okay to be honest and say that. Anybody feel that way? It just don't really feel like Christmas. Of course it don't. Most of you couldn't have Thanksgiving with your family. So it don't feel like Christmas. But I'm thankful. It's not based on how I feel. It's not about how we feel. It's not about a feeling. It's about Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with putting up Christmas trees. As long as when we see the tree, we remember the word said, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. See, Jesus wasn't accursed, but he became accursed for us because we were accursed. And he hung on that tree so that we might receive the blessing of Abraham and that we might receive eternal life. See, if you can see a tree and know that the tree is what gave me life, Although it wasn't a decorated tree, these aren't either. I told them in the 845 service, these are like the new cool and hip thing. You know, like cakes and all kinds of stuff, they're naked. That's, that's what everybody calls it now, right? Naked. You know, you have naked cakes where you can't you see the cake through the icing, so it's naked. And now you have all kinds of naked people in the world. Say amen, somebody. And then if you ain't careful, you have all kinds of nakedness in the church. I know you ain't going to help me preach that right now. All kinds of nakedness on social media. I ain't going to go there. But anyway, they were hip and cool. They were naked. But if you look at the tree, if you look at that tree, it wasn't a decorated tree, but it was a dead cross. But if when I look at a Christmas tree, I can remember that tree is where I found life. That tree... It's where he saved me. That tree is where he bore my sin. That tree is where he took the stripes whoo, for my healing. It was on that tree. If I look at this tree and I can remember he came so that he could die on that tree so that I could have eternal life, so that I could be healed, so that I could be whole. And there's nothing wrong with exchanging gifts if we can simply remember to thank God for his unspeakable gift. See, it's not a, I wish I'd have took, brought a present with me this morning. It's not about taking a bow off and tearing off some paper to find Jesus. It's about opening Jesus up and finding one layer after another, after another, after another of Jesus, after another. And it doesn't matter how long I unwrap, I just keep finding more and more. Oh, that's good. More good stuff about Jesus. You know why? Because God didn't send us a lot of packages. He just sent everything we needed in one package. And His name was Jesus. And He's everything that I need. He's everything that you need this morning. The gift of God is eternal life. It, see, it doesn't dry up and it doesn't fade away. Everything that, that mankind can hold in our hands will eventually rot erode and fade away listen to something else every religion that man has made will one day be nothing more than history did you hear me but the God that I'm talking about this unspeakable gift is forever and forever and forever and here's the good part I don't know about you but I couldn't afford it there's a lot of things in this world that I can't afford but God said that's alright I'll purchase it for you and so he came, whoo, hallelujah. He came and he paid that price on the tree so that I could have life and have it more abundantly. 
so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. So if you will stand with me all over the room this morning. So I said all that to say this. It really doesn't matter what day Jesus was born. It has nothing to do with our joy and our salvation. But what matters is this. No matter what we face in this life, He is with us. He's with us in the good time and the bad. He's with us when we're enjoying vacation, but He's also with us at the hospital. He's with us in the operating room. He's with us in the emergency room. He's with us if we have to go, God forbid, to the attorney's office, Scott Webster. God's with us. He's with us at home when we're lying in bed crying, saying nobody knows and nobody seems to care. He's with us when we're struggling financially. He's with us when we're battling anxiety and depression. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. He is with us even when we're struggling with addiction. Did you hear your pastor this morning? He's with us on the mountain, but thanks be to God, He's with us when we're walking right through the pit of the valley. His Word said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Guess what? He's with us even when we disappoint Him. That's how good God is. He's there for life. He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So in just a few moments, they're going to sing and I want some people that will to slip on their mask and come to this altar. Because if there's one thing COVID has done, it's kind of got us out of the altars. But I want you to slip on your mask, if you will, and come to the altar this morning. And for nothing else, if you just say, God, I thank you that you're with me. I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. But you may also be here today, and you need to hear this. Once you have him, once you've received him, you can't hide from him. You can't run from Him. You can't get away from Him. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 139, they don't have it on the screen. Here's what the psalmist said. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. But if I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. Shoo, isn't it good He never leaves us? He said, if I take on the wings of the morning, that's the high. Or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's the low. Even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. I came to tell somebody this morning, Jesus is always.